0: Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind. I'm James O'Loughlin. This podcast is all about your mind, how it works, mental illness and mental health, and with me as always... Professor Ian Hickey, Psychiatrist and Co-Director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Today, we're talking about addiction, addiction to alcohol, to drugs, online porn, to shopping, to your phone. And what about people who have to exercise every day or watch five episodes of The Queen's Gambit every night? Are they addicted? Are some more prone to addiction than others? If so, why? And if you are addicted to something, what do you do about it? Ian? Addiction. What is it? Is there a definition?
1: It's such a fascinating topic. It is, yeah. And it's one of those areas that sits almost between sort of moralism (laughs) at one end Mm. and sort of neuroscience at the other. Yeah. And so you have these really, really different kind of views. I mean, what I might call the North American view, you know, the addict for life. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. A very, in some ways, biomedical and, and very sort of brain control view. On the other hand... You have very in much more European traditions and other traditions. Very social kind of views. It depends mm. where you are. So it is worth starting with some definitions, James. Yeah, yes. I so. so the <laughs> real concept of addiction comes from drugs, from pharmacology, from things that actually, when you ingest them, you take them in in one way or another: swallow them, snort them up your nose, inject them, get in and create a pharmacological effect. So with a be drug a effect, a physical. Yes. Yes. And that. They then operate through the brain's principal biochemical systems and dopamine being the king of addiction, that dopaminergic things which drive pleasure, one of my favorite things, pleasure, the dopaminergic system in the basal parts of the brain, the bottom parts of the brain, the old parts of the brain. So these are bits of the brain we share with most other animals. Most other animals like pleasure too, food, Mm. sex, having a good time, being out. We share that with most other animals and a strong motivator to behavior or the so-called rewards, You know, things you do again and again because they feel good, being dopaminergic. And so drugs that have traditionally operating directly or indirectly to drive dopamine release are strongly associated with wanting more. Right. Only trouble is when you want more. The nervous system changes over time, firstly to recognise the circumstances that lead to it, and we'll come back to this, this is Pavlov's dogs and classical conditioning, yep. recognising those things and then wanting it because it's about to happen, <laughs> salivating, if you like, in front of the meat, Pavlov. In this case, for drugs and uh, other sorts of addictions, you're in the circumstances that would release that dopamine. So you want to have it, you crave it, you want it. And then actually, if you don't get it, you're very upset. But when you do get it, the system actually changes over time to t- traditionally require more of it yes. to get the same effects. So the system, nasty little system, <laughs> goes, that's not enough, I want more.
0: So, So would you say there is a difference in kind... Or just of degree between, say, an addiction to heroin, where there are severe physical withdrawal symptoms, if you don't get it, and an addiction to exercise or shopping.
1: Right. So we come to that. So the pharmacology ones not only have this take it, release dopamine, develop tolerance, they then have withdrawal. You yeah. take the thing away and, and there are physiological. Hurts. It hurts. It hurts physiologically. Even so- coffee. Even coffee. Mm. Why did you have to throw that in? But yes, <laughs> coffee, for those of us, anyone's seen, I think it's kind of funny. We used to see people queuing outside methadone clinics. Now we see people queuing outside coffee shops in the morning with the same irritable, difficult behavior. Don't yeah. get in my way. i got to get the coffee. Yeah. Yes. So the pharmacological effect of withdrawal. So the, the traditional notions of addiction have all those things. Exposure, dopamine release, tolerance, withdrawal. Very physiological you know, in the particular sort of sequence of a, of the brain and its chemicals and a very medical explanation as to why it's very hard to do. Yeah. And that has led to the, okay, what about these other things, which you've just mentioned, what historically we wouldn't have called addiction. We would have called compulsive behaviours. Right. You know, things that really didn't have the same physiological effect, but actually do they have the same physiological effect? So what has happened is, needless to say, things like, Food and sex and other things we do are associated with pleasure, mm. don't mean release. Also, with other things like opioid re- release, you know, narcotic type stuff, but, but the brain's own indi- intrinsic opioid systems can be released and have some of the same phenomena, some of the same conditioning phenomena, some of the same behavioral phenomena. So in the addiction world, you've got the, pharmacolo- the drug bit, the pharmacological bit, but you now have this whole behavioral bit because they do have overlapping brain systems in fact, at the bottom of them, and these very old basic systems that drive you to repeat the same behavior, yeah. if that behavior has a number of characteristics, most importantly, it's pleasurable, yeah. so you want more, so you seek it out, and the, and the environmental cues that tell you it could be there, you're drawn to, but also, they also relieve something unpleasant. At the same time. So the drugs we also get addicted to actually relieve things like pain. So the things about opioids, you know, classic heroin sort of and opioids. Humans have always loved opioids, mm. not just because they make us feel weird, but they relieve noxious stimuli, unpleasant things, right. so-called aversive things. Pain being a really classic example. So it's easy to become addicted to painkillers. Yeah, very common. If alcohol relieves your anxiety and makes you able to function in certain kinds of ways, you know, alcohol, other psychoactive substances. But, then, but other, then
0: exercise, going for a run might relieve your anxiety.
1: So the classic one in this being uh, exercise being associated with release of opioids within the brain, endogenous right. opioids, the whole idea that it makes you feel better. Yeah. It makes you feel well, but in a weird way, it also relieves things. And if you
0: don't do it, like I do a bit of exercise. If I don't do it for a day, I feel a bit
1: not so good. Yeah. So there's the positive effect, but there's also the negative effect of not doing it. But also, if it provides relief from something that's actually noxious, that's unpleasant, we like that too. Yeah. So if you have these sets of characteristics, so we do have now. A pharmacological notion of addiction, and we also have a matching behaviour or a complementary behavioural notion of what used to be called compulsion, but sometimes gets called addiction. So it's a bit murky whether it is a bit it isn't, murky.
0: But I suppose if the characteristics of shopping addiction and addiction to heroin overlap, and there's several things that are similar, it becomes a bit of a semantic argument, doesn't it? You know, is that addiction or isn't it? does it really matter. What matters is that if you're addicted to online shopping. Or or you have a compulsion to online shopping, it could be a problem and you need to address it.
1: Yes. It depends what you think then about addiction. Because as I say, in the American kind of idea, addiction's not your fault, right? You're born an addict, you have nothing to do, and you could just go. And then also, it matters to the treatment. Because again, in that American Alcoholics Anonymous type tradition, addict for life, if you touch the thing once, you'll be addicted again. Yeah. Yeah. And also, the only treatment is abstinence. You must never touch the substance again. Mm. (laughs) So, very absolute kind of view.
0: Actually, tough with exercise and shopping.
1: (laughs) Tough (laughs) with almost everything. Yeah. So, actually, in an intervention sense, that's not true. That uh, there's all. You have this all or none phenomena versus actually, can you actually control the behaviour? So, for in the alcohol, can you go back to controlled drinking? Most people use substances. In fact, all those substances we started to talk about before. Whether that's things like cocaine or it's things like alcohol or it's things like cigarettes or whatever, you know, can people use any of those things in moderation? Can they actually go to controlled use of the substance? Most people who use most of those substances aren't addicted. Most of us who use alcohol right. quite regularly, are not yeah. addicted to alcohol yeah. in a particular way. You know, different substances, nicotine is a substance that tends to be associated with much greater dependence. You know, heroin, for example, is again methamphetamine, probably top of the chart at the moment, for things that are more easily addictive. So there's differences between different chemicals. Now, on the behavioural side, same things. So then you get into a slightly different thing. Well, why do some people become addicted to shopping or exercise? Another question for later. Yeah,
0: that raises the question of the addictive personality. Is that a thing? You know, I have an addictive personality. I used to be addicted to this. Now I'm addicted to that. I'm always addicted to something.
1: Right. So go the other way around. We are not all equally likely to be addicted. So the notion if you used heroin once or you used cocaine once or you used methamphetamine once or you used alcohol once or you smoked a cigarette once, Mm. you would be equally likely to be addicted isn't true. No. So, yes, there's considerable individual variation.
0: Now, And what's
1: that as a result? What's that due to, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, three guesses games. Well, it runs in families. Genetic. So one is it runs in families. So partially that's probably genetic. There's not just genetic because there's an exposure to the thing. If you grew up in a family of smokers, you're much more likely to be a smoker, yeah. which is not entirely genetic. It's growing up within that family kind of environment, but
0: environmental too. And he went, when Correct. I was a criminal lawyer, yes, I used to represent lots of people who broke into houses, yes, and they would almost all be heroin addicts, yes. And then you'd pry a bit into their background, and it would often be a uh, a very miserable, unstable background, often rife with violence and other unpleasant things, and you know the working theory. I had, unbacked up by science at that time, was that heroin was a painkiller for them to help them un- escape the pain of their past.
1: The first bit is undoubtedly true. So yeah. genetics is a factor, but genetics is complex, not single genes. There's a, so some of the transmission in families is genetic, some. However, early childhood environments... And and not just early, but also later childhood environments, including exposure to drugs, et cetera, when you're a teenager, when you're in adolescence. So disrupted early environments, very disruptive, very traumatic environments. So in the addiction world at the moment, there is a good deal of emphasis on the role of early childhood trauma and disrupt the sort of thing you're, you're describing, people with very disruptive backgrounds, and the age of exposure to the drugs. It's a really interesting thing about alcohol, and, and tobacco is probably the best example. Mm. If you're never a smoker as a teenager, you don't take up smoking when 25 or 30 and suddenly think this is a nice thing to do. You think it's disgusting. Yeah. You know, and you and you don't, people don't become addicted. Yeah. Most alcohol use, if people take up alcohol in later life, very unlikely to become dependent on alcohol. Mm. However, so some of the substances which are taken up as a teenager or you have a childhood background. So the age of exposure matters, the childhood environment matters. So there are multiple, multiple factors that contribute to this individual variation, including mm. affecting brain development itself. So one of the worrying things about alcohol and some amphetamines and other substances is that if you expose the teenage brain to those substances, does it change the circuitry of the brain and then make them more likely to oh, be dependent? Mm. Because I don't want to say this too loudly to teenagers, but they don't have a fabulous off button. Stop. Don't do right. it again. That off button, that this is a really dumb thing to do, doesn't mature um, boys later than girls. Some would say some well, boys never. world, they're exploring differ. the world. they're, finding while they're exploring the-, the world without a stop button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, let's do that. Let's do that again. That. Perhaps we'll do it again. It had really bad consequences. That's not matter. We'll do it again. Yeah. And it takes a while to develop the, you know, uh, actually what we would call one trial learning. We did it once. It was a really dumb idea. Someone got hurt. We shouldn't do it again. Mm. Or to actually go, you can predict it in advance. That's pretty likely to happen, so we probably won't do it. Yeah. So that's a developing brain kind of phenomena, the inhibitory part which says stop, don't do, and in a sense prevents, if you like, the addictive kind of behaviour or the repetition of behaviours that are clearly not in your interest to pursue.
0: It is a de- decent working hypothesis that if your life is all happy and dandy, you're less likely to seek out those regular dopamine shots that addictive behaviour can give you. You're more likely to seek them out if life
1: is not good. Such an interesting thing about what is good. So one of the theories that well, if you're about, happy, if you're unhappy. Well, well, we'll come to happy. Yeah. So in <laughs> terms of other risk factors, you go to another deconstructed one. Deconstructed. No, you go to another one. No, no, that's a very important one, because the whole self-medication idea. Yes. Right. So I raised the one earlier on about self-medication for anxiety, self-medication for pain. You just hit the nail on the head of one of my favourite topics about the relationship between alcohol and depression and mood disturbances. Mm. Is this partially explained, in fact, by medicating unhappiness? Yeah. In now, you, you used an interesting thing about the childhood one, about opiates, almost for, childhood, for the pain of the earlier particular issue, which is interesting to use a pain analogy. I might say for the unhappiness or the distress or the psychological perturbation associated with that, for which opiates wipes it out. But alcohol is a very strong mood regulator, as yep. are a number of other substances. Now, the pleasurable ones, cocaine, amphetamines, things that kind of actually really release dopamine in a different kind of way, create a thrill, create, you know, in some ways or other, an experience mm. that heightens pleasure in a particular way. And if your life is otherwise unpleasant, unfilled with those things, do, are you drawn to that? So. What we call the comorbidity, you know, the co occurrence along with mood disorder, with psychological distress, is a very strong. So, when people have significant either physical pain or psychological pain or depression or anxiety, the chance that they will become dependent on substances is substantially increased. Mm. However, it also operates the other way around. The earlier the exposure to many substances, right. the more likely you are to become depressed or anxious on an ongoing basis. Yes. So, this runs I both see. ways two way street early mood disorder, anxiety. Leads to more substance dependence It's a vicious cycle Yeah, works both ways Okay Yeah, and, it, and over time So addiction is also best thought of as a chronic disease Not a one-off thing Right Because the brain has changed The social circumstances change And generally You just did a really interesting one about the criminality Generally your life gets worse <laughs> You lose stuff, you lose relationships.
0: Yeah. Oh good, I thought you you it's a general statement. <laughs> Generally, life gets
1: worse. No, 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 no. a hey, big podcast warning, podcast warning. Generally as you age, your life gets better. There you psychologically. Go. Good. good. We'll talk it. About- teenage is really hard. You know, old blacks like us, it's a breeze. Yeah. <laughs> Except for It's falling off. We will, yeah. So actually, that's really interesting. That actually, but the trouble with addiction and uh, and behavioural or pharmacological is the loss of things. And this is the really interesting behavioural thing, because behaviourally, we think, right, generally speaking, that we learn from behaviour. You've posited here before, James, you think people learn from what happens by experience. Usually, yeah. Yeah, so all those people in criminal law got dragged through the court again and again and again. The people tied up in drug use. and Lost relationships, got (laughs) terrible health, got hepatitis, you know, but whatever, blah, blah, blah. Everything went wrong and they went and used again. But I guess what
0: you're learning is, oh my gosh, my life is getting more complex and I've got court dates and I've just got kicked out of my house and my relationship. But what I've learned is that a hit of heroin, a slug of booze, can kind of, for a little while, make me feel okay about that. That's the learning, isn't it? The short-term learning.
1: That's the rationalisation of yeah. failure to learn. The learning, I mean, it's kind of interesting in a lot of discussions with people. They know that they've wreaked havoc on their lives, but they feel compelled. Yes. Right? It's actually not rational. That's the that's the that's the rationalisation they give after the behaviour, <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a kind of a socially acceptable thing to say. Well, I just relieve the but pain. But that sounds
0: like you're going back to the American model of it's all outside my control. Once it's a you disease. well,
1: once you are actually addicted, once you're in the really vicious hole, really deep hole of addiction of continuous use, despite the fact it has negative consequences, which you would think ordinarily behaviour would lead to it stopping, you actually can't stop it. Mm-hmm. The compulsive element, the thing of actually the brain just overriding the rationality. Now, this is the idea of the subcortical areas or the basic brain or the bit on the bottom, which really doesn't have thoughts, it just has actions, so this overrides.
0: So this is the b- bit of the brain going, shut up, give me some dopamine, shut up, give me some dopamine. When it doesn't even
1: say- use words. Yeah, right. In fact, it's quite interesting to talk to people about when they're doing things. And they know they're doing something that's really stupid, right? But yeah. they do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. Words is unhelpful.
0: I've done that many times. <laughs> yeah. Most
1: of us would be aware of the fact we say to ourselves, blah, 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 but we find ourselves actually doing the behavior, yeah. right? Despite the fact we're saying to ourselves, no, I'm not. I'm really not doing that. I mean, you know, that might include I'm really not stopping at this uh, betting shop to have a bet. I'm not really stopping at this pub to have a drink. I'm not really stopping at this clothes shop to buy more clothes or buy more shoes or buy more lottery tickets, but I am. So
0: that short-term dopamine monster is a powerful beast.
1: It's nonverbal. It drives action. Now, the interesting thing about this action, that part of the brain runs motor actions. Yeah, It's your doing bit. Right. <laughs> like it coordinates the doing. So you can so, almost feel
0: like... You're acting independent of yourself. And you, Wow, I just, I'm, here I am in a betting shop. How
1: did that that's happen? That's right. And if you try and stop the person, right, you literally sort of, you know, I'm making straight check it, sort of. <laughs> they struggle. They struggle. Yeah. They get restless. They can't sit still. They can't stop until they start engaging in the activity. Wow. Once they're engaging in the activity, their anxiety goes down. If you stop them engaging in the motor activity, in fact, they get more and more worked up, more and more distressed. So once they start the activity, no matter what they say they're doing, they're doing it. Mm. <laughs> and they actually feel better which actually arises before. Now, this comes to the Pavlovian bit about classical conditioning. You know, what triggers the thing? So if you see the bedding shop sign, we don't have to say signs anymore, like the TAB sign as you go down the street. If you see the hotel sign as you go down the street, if you see the mall, if you see whatever, you see the things you normally associate, that's where you normally take drugs, that's where you buy drugs. You see the thing, you've already initiated the process long before the substance arrives. So what's called the unconditioned stimulus, the thing that's become linked in time and sequence with the behavior, the thing that precedes it. For the Pavlov's dogs, the bell ringing that preceded the salivation before it got the meat. You know, actually, you don't need the meat anymore. The yeah, bell right. drives this elevation here. The stimuli in the environment, the things we've associated with the addictive behaviour, drive this whole circuitry. You haven't even taken the stuff, Yeah, right. and it's off and going, and you're engaging in the motor behaviours that are driving you. Same part of the brain driving it. Wow! You've got this idea. You know, we've had this discussion before. Who's in the driver's seat? Yeah. And you think the cortex, the thinking brain, because you're a thinking guy, well, or a I rational always- guy. Yeah, but you can confess here. Yeah. Many of us are well aware that we're not in the driver's seat, yeah. and probably addiction—probably <laughs> addiction—is the best example of that. It You're not in the a driver's seat. It's
0: isn't it?
1: And no matter how many times you crash it, crash the car, and whatever else. Mm. I mean, the criminality side is really interesting. That you've spent part of your life in that. You know, most of those people do not want to be in that situation.
0: No, that's but true. But they
1: repeat the behaviours over and over again.
0: Well, it's, it's short term over long term, isn't it? It's it's what do I want now versus what do I want. Over the next five years.
1: I don't think there's even that amount of verbalization going on. Yeah. So once, once you become stuck in it, this is, this is where the, the addiction bit becomes meaningful. You're stuck in it. It's chronic. It's ongoing. Yeah. Right? Then the really interesting question then, because I'm sort of arguing it's almost impossible to overcome at that point. The American it's doing level. it. Then so the interesting thing is, well, what do you how think? do people ever stop? Yeah, because many but do. they do. Yeah. <laughs> they do. So that's
0: that's what we're going to move on to now. Oh, okay. If you are addicted, what works and what doesn't? Right. Uh, can I, uh, without preempting your answer, mm. I'm going to suggest that saying to yourself, you know what, I'm never going to do that again, and changing nothing else apart from saying to yourself, I'm going to exert my will, probably doesn't work that well.
1: Fail. That Inevitably, does inevitably fails. No, it fails. Yeah, right. It fails. It fails every time.
0: Yeah. Right. Probably not
1: every time. It fails every time. Okay. Because what you've got to think, you've got to think a bit longer term. Now, this is hard to do when you're a drug addict or another addict to think longer term, okay? Yeah. Now you've got to engage that cortex bit. So the the thing in the driver's seat has to have a conversation with the thing in the back seat. (laughs) Okay, now. Okay. Okay, Sorry, just before you go, I'm just
0: thinking, imagine all the people who've woken up having gambled, taken drugs, alcohol, sex addiction, whatever – and just woken up and thought, oh, I did it again. I hate myself. I'm never going to do that again. That must have happened millions of times. That was every
1: day. Isn't that sad? The number of alcohol all those regrets. Oh, but you know, shame. Yeah, shame. That's a horrible thing, isn't it? It's terrible. So the I mean, you probably very distressing. No, you've hit on a really important point. The really distressing mental states that follow are terrible mm. and makes it worse because they're very hard to tolerate too. You know, and it's actually quite, come quite hard in treatment in my own area where classically alcohol and depression get mixed up. And people say, well, I'm not going to treat your depression until you fix your alcohol. Yeah, it's great. a vicious gonna, cycle. Go, great, how's that, like that. going to help? Because they're going to be stuck in the most terrible state yeah. and I'm doing nothing and they've got alcohol available. And really see, that's shame. unhelpful.
0: You wake up on Thursday yeah. morning having got blind the night yeah. before. That's shame. What's going to make me feel better when I feel so yeah. ashamed and reg- regretful? Just a quick drink. Yeah. That's the cycle,
1: isn't right. it? So this is where the bloke in the back seat... To be gender specific The bloke in the back seat yeah. Has got to say Okay, okay We've got to get our act together here Yes And yes. we've got to have a plan And the plan can't be An all or nothing plan This is where I'm rejecting The Americanism It right. cannot be an all or nothing Because that is not going to work That isn't going to last till lunchtime Yeah That all or nothing thing
0: It's not just going to be My will No Because my will has failed So many times <laughs>
1: I'm from the brain science. that doesn't even believe that free will exists, but that's for another time. That's a philosophical <laughs> oh, that's kind a, of that's a philosophical one. We won't go there right, right now. I'm writing <laughs> that down as a topic, free right. will. It doesn't exist. Yeah. But to go back to the situation, you've got to say, okay, okay, what's going on here, right? Well, what is going on here is, yes, I have the deep rational desire to be out of this situation. Yes. Right? I recognize that what I'm doing is inconsistent with actually what I really want to do, but I'm also recognizing that what's happening here is not entirely just able to be overcome by will.
0: Yes.
1: I'm going to have to look at the contingencies. I'm going to have to look at the situations. What's driving my behavior? Now, this is where understanding the neuroscience becomes helpful. Yeah. Understanding that classical conditioning thing. Are there certain things that set me off? So the first thing to do is to limit those. We've got to have a longer-term plan. What I'm saying is you have to have a rationalization of what the plan is and how you're going to implement the plan. Mm. And that your brain has changed over time in the chronic situation. To adapt to this, so brains are changing all the time. These connections, these dopaminergic connections, these circuits in the deeper brain, the subcortical areas, have to be rewired. So this is going to take a while, and we've got to we got to uncouple some things.
0: So here's an example: yep. You're a teenage boy. Yep. Uh, you've got infinite access to porn. Yep. Uh, and whenever you're alone in the house, you can't ac- you access it. So you realise that the trigger for that is being alone in the house. So the solution is try not to be alone in the house.
1: Correct. Yeah. Excellent, James. Thank you. Or if you have one of these little funny things that we all walk around with, the personal computer in the pocket kind of thing, yeah. you might have to surrender that.
0: Oh, wow. You can help. Others can help here. Hey, sorry, I didn't ask you about this. Phone addiction.
1: <laughs> Every time we invent a new thing, right? I mean, and phones and smartphones are a great example of this. They are set up with the schedules, the behavioral schedules to mm. make sure that you do become dependent, so-called intermittent reinforcement. Yeah. Like poker machines and like everything else. You get sufficient rewards but unpredictably that you have to go and check all the time. Yes. And whether that's Twitter or whether I it's got whatever an email. else. <laughs> I got an email. Somebody likes me on Instagram. Twenty-five useless ones, but the next one is the best one, and the best. This thing could be the it one. Is the this one. Is going to be the one that changes everything. And it is just occasionally, right? And it is unpredictably. So you have to go and use it all the time because you never know where the next one might happen today or next week or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. In fact, that intermittent reinforcement schedule is the thing that we know behaviorally makes it most likely that you will become addicted. Okay. Dependent. So
0: we can add phones to you add the phones. modern pile technology. Of yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. So, so that's a good example. Like, for example, now, here's the interesting thing. If you take that away, so if you remove the stimulus, yep. actually, brains start to rewire. Okay. They change. They're not fixed. This is why the Americans are wrong, mm. or the 1930s Americans were wrong. The brain is not fixed in those things. It starts to rewire. Okay, what are we doing instead? What other things are actually out there? So this used to happen. My favorite example used to be when we didn't have poker machines in New South Wales. Mm. As we had them in New South Wales. We didn't have them in Victoria. Right. So the smartest thing for poker machine addicts move to do to was Victoria. move to Victoria. So and I you don't several- say that
0: often. I- no offence, Victorians. <laughs> that was because in New South Wales joke.
1: I feel terrible about A little insensitive perhaps in 2021. To But yes. the solution for poker machine addiction used to seriously be one option and i know several people where this was actually the case they moved to victoria and they're no longer an addict their addiction was very specific to poker machines and those particular things so they didn't go into the clubs anymore the clubs didn't have poker machines guess what end of the problem they didn't become addicted to something else they got it stuck in that particular thing with its sets of contingencies the clubs and the particular environment there used to be clubs and i've been to a few which were on the new south wales side of the river so people used to drive from victoria (laughs) Know, they put them so close that if you're close enough, yeah, you could right. get over it. You know, so the clubs that were built on the New South Wales side to make use of that in particular mm-hmm. ways. So the environmental contingencies of addiction are really important. So one of the things to break some of these particular patterns. Now, you have to do that by a degree of abstinence. That's you can't do that a little bit. You have to, for a certain period of time, stop it. So rather than yeah. saying, I'm going to stop the thing for life, if you're seriously chronically- you so weak. It might be a week. It might be a relatively short period of time. And you don't necessarily have to say for life Hmm. because once you've unwired the thing, you don't necessarily. So I hate American shows where the person has one drink and then they're a hopeless alcoholic again for the next 15 years. That's not true.
0: Okay. Well, we'll get into relapse in a moment, but I like the thing. And I think this is a AA thing, isn't it, where they say one day at a time. So you don't think about the infinite time of 40 years without a drink. You just say, well, I'm not going to say that. That's too big. I'm just going to say I'm not going to drink today.
1: Yes, but I, distinct from the AA thing, I'm saying also it's entirely possible the number of these behaviours may get back under control. Yeah,
0: and you will be able to have a drink.
1: You can rewire, and you may be able to Yes, so you may be able to drink again in the future. Okay. Now, depending. But we'll get to relapse. It's like caveat. A depending on how bad the problem was right. in the first place. Yes.
0: Okay. So. So the first thing is try and remove yourself from the trigger environment. But that's really hard if you're addicted to alcohol uh, and you walk down the street and there's bottle shops and parts. So alcohol. Smoking every.
1: Well, here we go. See, smoking, when 70% of adult men smoked, it's pretty hard to put yourself in a smoke-free environment. Yeah. These days.
0: No, it's very easy.
1: It's easy. It's even hard to bludge a cigarette off someone. But it's much more restricted. And also, more importantly, it's much more socially disapproved of. Definitely. Right? So other people are not only telling you not to, they're really objecting to you doing it. Yeah, exactly. In very public and very open places. Very different from alcohol. Very different. Hmm. So these days, that particular issue around smoking, the social pressure actually is very helpful to assist with quitting and assist with reducing and quitting. Alcohol, very hard, because the socialization of alcohol is so rife in our society, and we are so associated with fun and with events and with enjoyment and social pleasure. Social pleasure, very important social pleasure, being with others enjoying yourself, that it is extremely difficult. So what do you do? Go to rehab? Well- the abstinence from the substance may be part of that, yes, but mm. here's where the role of others comes in. So I don't believe, as you know, James, another topic, I don't really believe in individual resilience. No, you don't. Resilience is a function of social groups. I do. What you need. <laughs> I do. What you need is, I'm trying to change the emphasis here, the balance, so, well, towards what you need, and it's a good example, what you need are social groups, okay? Yeah. If you, and this is really well known for drugs and alcohol, if you grow up in a family that doesn't abuse alcohol, that doesn't smoke or whatever, the chance that you will actually be a dependent person is very low. Oh, that's good. If you grow up in a family that smokes, yup. Yeah. And the best thing that happens is if your parents were smokers is they quit. Oh, yeah. And you know, in, in an alcohol situation, if you're an alcohol and you members of your family are abusing alcohol, much better if the whole family quits for a while. You know, right. you, you remove to it support, from support Yeah.
0: To support dad. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Not <laughs> Well someone. In this case we'll say dads, yes. Yeah. Someone in the family. I didn't mean you. Someone in the family. <laughs> Shouldn't take this thing so personally. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Someone in the family. We need to support dad. <laughs> dad. Dad. Dad dad's dad's in dad's trouble. lost the plot again. That's right.
0: Everyone, stop drinking.
1: I was really focusing on young people here, I'm trying to set. because I say Because. Actually, in truth, most adults actually do moderate their drinking. As I make the comment all the time, I have a few drinks on Friday night while watching the football. I'm asleep by the second half, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, small amount, whatever else, gone to sleep. Teenagers are the ones who are likely to stay up, keep drinking, and it's the development of patterns of behavior when you're younger that become very problematic. Right. But this does happen all the time. So the social environment, we've seen during the COVID period, people being at home more alone, drinking more at home on yes. their own, very bad. So the drinking behaviour thing is strongly moderated by social effects. And if you really have someone or a close family group, you can assist by actually reducing that, just like with smoking. You know, if you're trying to quit smoking, the worst thing is the person sleeping next to you is smoking or someone else in the house is giving you cigarettes. So, you know.
0: Well, that is, So I have an example from my home. My wife doesn't drink, never has. And so I do drink, but I never drink at home because I, I just feel like, you know, it's pretty. Not
1: approved of, really. Yeah, well, that's no. right. I mean, She
0: wouldn't mind, but on the other hand, she wouldn't love it. And it just feels kind of weird, essentially on your own. So I just never do. So right. So this build. is where the
1: socialization, I mean, there are aspects of American research I love. And there are other aspects which are really uh, very hard to understand. Mm. They have so cracked it for what drug addiction is about in rats. I, oh, that's The good. best rat research, rodent research in the world. They've worked Excellent. out to I, the I bet bin- the
0: rat population is <laughs> I'm
1: stoked. In fact, I'm moving to
0: America. They'll help
1: me. A very famous presentation I went to out of the National Drug Institutes in the United States. You know, they said, you know, we have absolutely solved drug addiction in rats. Just one small problem, it doesn't cross over into humans that well. <laughs> So it's well, that's a bit of a problem. Very good for the rats You yeah, really so didn't good. have a cocaine problem or an alcohol yeah. problem until you made it for what them. What about
0: giraffes? Are you going to look at them next?
1: So for a great, great, terrible example at the moment is the outbreak of fentanyl overdoses in the United States. There's a fentanyl epidemic, which is an opiate, a synthetic opiate, which has killed tens of thousands of people in North America in the last few years. Prescription drug? Prescription drug. Right. And, and the social behaviour around that. I mean, everything that can be known about opioid dependence in rats is already known, but it doesn't explain the sudden explosion of fentanyl use and then deaths in the United States Population. It's a social phenomenon. Mm. And then the at risk people are dying in droves, in tens of thousands. It's a terrible tragedy in yeah. public health. It's a public health problem. So, how that's become used, how the use of uh, pain relieving medication sort of got outside the medical control of that, how it was done and then how it was traded and who got involved is a social phenomenon. Mm. And then those at most risk have been most harmed by that particular kind of phenomenon. So, the sociology of controlling mm. substance use about controlling supply, everyone who complains about taxation on alcohol and cigarettes and everything else, is in truth, everything we do to control supply, access, yeah. Yeah. actually limits the chance that anyone will be dependent.
0: Well, I, I, I reckon porn is the greatest example of that, when when we were young supply was incredibly limited.
1: Uh, Except in the ACT where you grew up, which well, gave rise to the porn yeah, think capital ha- of the world. Yeah, yes.
0: But- But now it's just everyone who's got a device and so I'm sure addictive behaviour amongst particularly certain groups must have skyrocketed.
1: Well, the interesting thing you see that, of course, just take that particular example, is the exposure of younger and younger populations to that. So the adverse effects of that. Particularly boys. I yes. Think. Well, on the addiction side, yes, I couldn't say actually on the on the body image side and sexualization mm, of yeah. younger women, in fact if you look at rates of increasing self-harm and suicidal behavior in young women around issues, there are clearly issues around body image and early sexualization etc that are arising in that area. And one of the contributing factors may well be exactly what you're saying. Mm. Exposure to that kind of stuff at very early ages. Yeah which may lead to imitation of those behaviours well, or have been drawn to those behaviours. It is isn't
0: int- Because supply has gone from very, very limited to literally unlimited. And that's quite an interesting case study, isn't it? Because that yes. doesn't happen with alcohol and maybe it's happened to some drugs a little bit. No,
1: in all, all the rest of the drug and alcohol world, we have a very strong emphasis on redic- restriction of supply. Yes. In fact, with, of course, the debate going on worldwide at the moment is about cannabis. Do you legalise mm. cannabis and make it widely available as is happening in the United States, in many states and in Canada? Or do you stick where Australia's stuck, which is on restricting supply, In the another topic. In terms of, another topic for another time. But they are the public health sets of issues. But to come to the intervention ones before we lose the plot here, it, much addiction is treatable. But you've got to understand the comorbidities, like the medical kind of bits, what are the problems, we were well, talking about the mental health kind of sets of problems. You've got to look at actually the short term. So where, where the AA bit you picked up, which I was, didn't mean to be critical of that particular bit, you do need to treat a day at a time. It's not the yeah. whole rest of your life.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so it's about so, the next so, 12
1: t- hours, the next 24 hours yeah. is really important. And that's where rehab and detoxification and periods away from the substance or removed from the situation, the classic gone into the clinic, that's why that stuff works, at least in the short term. But Mm. then you've got to set out the longer term. And it does allow the brain to rewire and start to adapt. And that's the answer to why some people can quit.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we know what the theory is we're trying to rewire the brain. But, I, you know, say I'm addicted to alcohol. I find it really hard to remove myself from all the triggers because there's bottle shops and pubs everywhere. I've got some people around me who are trying to support me. But what... You know, what do I do? Do I need? At what point do you need to go to rehab? But how do you uh, maximize the chances of this longer term rewiring of your well,
1: brain? Well, this is where the pharmacological bit matters. If you are really seriously dependent, yeah, and you need medically assisted detoxification, so the withdrawal effects and withdrawal from alcohol can be a major medical yeah. crisis. So this is where the ones that are pharmacological rather than behavioural get a bit tricky. So opioid withdrawal, alcohol withdrawal, if you're seriously dependent, may require medical assistance. May require detox. The rehab bit or the other bit is that if you really can't get the contingencies, the life contingencies sorted, then you sort of have to opt out of society for a while. That's where that becomes useful. Go to, go to a yeah. residential rehab. Yeah, yeah, get out of the situation. Or, you know, if you've got family resources or other resources, remove yourself. We're using but poker machines, move to Victoria. You know, that kind of idea about you're going to have to seriously change. You're not going to get the thing under control in the current situation. And you've got to be smarter than just saying it's a matter of free will or motivation. I should be able to, you know, because that's really hard. The great thing about AA, not the total we give it up for life, is the peer support, is the understanding of people who've been in the same situation, people who don't turn around and get all moralistic with you. On the medical side, people who understand that there's a neuroscience here, and you may need treatment for your anxiety, your depression, your other sets of issues, you know, and the involvement of family and peers and others in that. You know, so we are rather unsympathetic, it is, you know, there's a, the world I'm in, we have a debate about who's most discriminated against. You know, where's the stigma worst for mental health or addiction? The addiction, alcohol people always go, you know, in mental health, you're lucky. People kind of understand you. In the addiction world, we are still incredibly critical of people who've become addicted to various right. substances yeah. or behaviours. We just see them as lacking free will, as lacking will, as lacking motivation. You know, they can't get their own acting control, which really, really fails to recognise but, but, but the individual variability.
0: Uh, if you've got part of your world and your social connections set up around you, addiction that is whether you're going off to score every day or whether you're meeting friends at a a, a pub then in terms of changing that the the idea of setting up a different set of social norms for yourself and a different set of um, repeatable behaviors and i guess aa meetings are an example of that instead of going to the pub i go to the meeting and i'm in a social sense with people and we're all supporting each other whether it's something formal like that or something else you can design. That seems like a very good and important part of it.
1: That's called a plan. Yeah, You've got to right. have a plan. <laughs> you can't just say, today I'm going to give up and that's it. And I'll be a test for myself and I'll lose by midday. Yeah. You've got to have a plan. And in fact, if your whole social world has become one that's around substance use or it's around gambling or it's around else. And, and this is what tends to happen also is people's worlds become more and more restricted. So the more addicted they are, the more that's their whole world. And the less other social relationships, the less likely they are to engage in other activities. Isn't
0: that a test for addiction, if you can say something like, if I couldn't do this for... a day I'd feel uncomfortable, or most of uh, many things in my life so revolve can, around this yeah. thing.
1: So, there are a series of questions about have you tried to give up? Yeah. How long did it last? Four hours? Eight yeah. hours? Yeah. Have other people said to you, this is really a problem? Because you know what you say to yourself? No, it's not a problem. I got it under control. A bit I can stop anytime I like. Mm. <laughs> so, in many of these areas, we ask, you know, what does your family say about that? What does your doctor say about that? What do the people you care about say about that? And they all go, you know what? He's got no control over that. And mm. it's very big problem. Mm. When you're getting that kind of feedback from the wider world, It really matters to actually change the situation. And then you've got to have a plan, like today's plan, the week plan, the month plan – this to change is something
0: really important. Yeah. like that, That's a big thing, isn't it? Because when people are addicted, they kind of go, on, oh, yeah, it's a big part of my life and whatever. And at some point you think, okay, this is a big deal and I've got to del- d- devote a lot of my attention and my brain t- power to working out how right. to it. Right. So
1: this it. goes to the lovely concept in the world of motivational interviewing, right? Oh, uh, yes. At what point, <laughs> under what circumstances are People who are prepared to take that leap.
0: And usually they say, at least in the criminal law, law world, people only do it when they hit rock bottom.
1: Hopefully. So that's not true too. Good. I mean, we don't want to start everything when no, people's lives are disastrous. In fact, as in most of these things, it's easier. Now, I come back to my second favourite topic early intervention. Early intervention. The earlier you, you recognise it, a particular teenagers, the earlier you recognise it, the easier it is to change before yes. the whole rest of the world falls apart. So, you know, and actually int- being, being aware of yourself. So this is the interesting thing, I think, between knowing that rational thing, you know, like the back. Seat dialogue about what's going on versus the front seat, what the hell am I doing? The earlier you get a hold of that, or people around you say, Hey, 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 I know you mean well, but what you do is X, the earlier you can. And then, what is the motivation? So, what is the motivation can often be really important. You know, wife's about to leave, you know, Mm. kids are moving out, losing my job, you know, etc., etc., before you end up in the criminal courts or before you end up in other sort of situations or have lost everything. Once you've lost everything, it's a very long road back, in fact, very difficult.
0: Early intervention.
1: Earlier intervention. So forget the rock bottom concept. Mm -hmm. The motivation and finding the point at at what matters to people. So I say, you know, you should stop because of your physical health. But frankly, you couldn't care less about your physical health. Right. But something else does matter to you. Your daughter's never going to speak to you again. Yeah, right. Or, you know, you're about to lose your house because you've done all your money or whatever else. What matters to you? Finding the point of actually... What can be saved? What can be rescued? What would be sufficient for you to go, you know what? It is a problem. Yeah. And And I need a plan. Just finally,
0: someone's, you know, come out the other side of their addiction. They haven't done it for 10 years. What are the triggers that might raise the chances of a relapse? Stress, I
1: presume. Emotional distress, emotion, being back in bad circumstances because this is a behavior you've engaged in before, being aware of the situation. So clearly, other aspects of your life. For example, pain's a classic. Developing other chronic physical illness, having re-exposure to mm. the substances. You haven't used substances, but you go and see a doctor and you have an operation and the other substance again. You go, "Hmm, it's kind of nice." You know, like, being back in social situations. You know, through, there are those environmental things to realise that that is what has happened. I want to make comment just a little bit about um, drug substitution. You know, the sort of methadone oh, discussion yeah. and everything else. Yeah. Why those things are so important, right? Is they allow people to change the contingencies. What do you mean? So. Rather than having to do all the drug behaviour of getting heroin and scoring or whatever else, you know, if you can use methadone, you can go back to work, right? You can actually set up a whole other life again. Mm. Then actually stopping the whole sets of behaviours that go by a degree of drug substitution. Yeah, right. Right? Which is much frowned upon.
0: Having to find 50 bucks a day or perhaps more. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And so the harm reduction type strategies allow – they're not just about harm reduction. They allow people to reconstruct a different life. Right. Once you've reconstructed a different life, then whether you then quit the other substitution substance or not, you know – you're at least physically healthier, but more importantly, you're probably socially healthier and mm-hmm. can then take the next set of steps along the way. So that all or nothingness, you know, you must quit the drugs altogether. Mm. And this is where the medical bit about harm reduction and drug substitution, you know, replacement therapies of one or sort of nicotine and whether it's methadone or whatever else, in order that you might be able to change these sets of behavioural yeah. contingencies that mm-hmm. actually operate around the thing to live, firstly, a physically healthier life, but secondly, a socially healthier life.
0: Very interesting, a very interesting topic. Next time, On minding your mind, although of course you can listen to the EPS in any order. We're going to talk about big life crises when something massive happens to change your life. What's going on in your brain? How do you make sense of it? How do you cope? Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is, of course, available from organisations such as Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. You can just Google them, of course, or you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14.